are here. In the 11FS office in London for episode 84 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you dormant funds, the SEC still won't let crypto be, and do you really need a blockchain? All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined... (laughs) joined by Colin G. Platt, who's not in a field. Oh my God, what are you doing here? Uh, I'm sitting in a chair. This is weird. You're not standing at your desk. You're sitting in a chair. I tried to, but they, they wouldn't let me stand up here. How's life in Colin Land? Uh, life is fantastic, actually. Yeah, how so? Uh, well, busy as hell, but you know, it's always good. They let me back into the country. I don't know why. Yeah, no, it's getting it's getting touch and go on that stuff at the moment. With yeah, the next month's going to get hard, right? Ixnay on the Brexit, say. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not alone. We're actually joined by guests this week. Check us out. Oh. Uh, look at us go. Um, we've got the one and only Seraphine and back with us. How are you, Seraphine from Climatics? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm I'm okay, but we're joined also by Anthony Macy from uh, Barclays. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you very much. He's shown Climatics <laughs> as well. No, no, vendor agnostic. Just <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. You've got a T-shirt on um, that says Climatics on it. Uh, that's in uh, support of the Ion Hackathon that occurred last week, which I think you covered on the show. Indeed, uh, I don't listen to the podcast. It but I will heard be it a happened. bonus episode. That ah, will definitely happen. Cool. Uh, okay. You can see then. into the future, Anthony. Um, and, and, and our final guest, I'm going to let say their own name, because the last time I tried, it made the blooper reel. Uh, oh, come on. You can do it. No, I can't. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's enough. your name? There you go. Uh, Vila Santo, Head of Emerging Technologies for Nordea Bank. From Nordea, thank you for joining us. And thank you for saying your own name. Um, there, there we go. I really appreciate that. It's, it's made life so much easier. Uh, Already, uh, first story this week comes from Forbes.com. Apparently, there's no such thing as dormant funds in banking. And the setup for this one's pretty important, right? So uh, there's a uh, one of the principal claims made by Ripple for their XRP bridging currency is that it would free up more than five trillion that is, quote, sitting dormant in bank Nostra Vostra accounts around the world. Uh, There's only one problem with that. Anybody want to guess what the problem is? It doesn't actually exist. Yeah. Okay. Um, So I guess. the important thing here is to understand Nostra Vostros and why Ripple were claiming this. I remember this a few years ago that uh, Ripple's sales pitch was basically that they're Airbnb for liquidity. So just like there are houses sitting around that are currently empty but are owned um, that could be making money, you could do the same with liquidity. There are bank accounts sitting around with cash in them that could be doing other things too. Sort of like if I had cash in my current account, I could buy something but still have the cash too. If it sounds too good to be true, <laughs> um, so does anybody, Macy, do you want to hit me with what's a Nostra Vostro? Yeah, um, I actually think if you read the original article that Francis wrote, Francis Coppola, it was excellent, very well articulated, very clearly covered all of the points. But basically, Nostro Vostro accounts are your offset accounts that you have on either side of an international transaction. One's your money going in and one's your money going out. So and- Nostro Vostro translating literally to yours and mine. Exactly. From Italian. From Italian. I, I don't know why in Italian. There's probably some sort of historical banking reason that... I thought it was Latin. No. Where's Richard Crook when we need him? Richard Crook. Anyway, um, essentially, the like other deposit accounts, they're accounts that are interest-bearing. Um, but because interest rates are near zero, um, that source of income of having money sitting around. So like, I'm... Uh, one bank I'm dealing with another bank that I as a bank might try and hold on to that liquidity in order you know from everybody that has money I might try and hold on to it for two days three days four days just to try and get that bit more interest out of it but in recent years we've seen interest rates drop down so you're not seeing banks hold on to liquidity in fact because of the cost of capital they're trying to move move things off that aren't aren't making sense to them as a, a little bit quicker um so uh the and then of course the cash is that cash that sits or liquidity that's sitting in these Nostra Vostros is also locked up in essence. It's committed. It's encumbered. Right. It's it's committed or encumbered. But like the thing to remember is it isn't the bank's money. It's their client's money. Yes. Right. So there's a there's a time where there's a free float and like the banks can do stuff between when you make that transaction, when you actually settle that and they'll repo it out, which she talks about in here. But it's not like the banks are going, right, we can go willy-nilly. Actually, I think that did happen uh, a few years, about 11 years ago. It was a big bank, you may have heard of it, called Lehman Brothers. They did this thing called rehypothecation, where they actually had money that was Anthony's money, and then they lent that out. And then they weren't happy with that, so they turned around and lent, lent that to Villa. And then they turned around and lent that to Simon. 
And that created a really big problem. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called the Great Financial Crisis of mm -hmm. 2008, 2009, because at some point, those all had to be unwound. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's what maybe Ripple's trying to bring us, maybe? Yeah, just so fill it out. Can I risk alienating both the sane and insane in this argument? Um, so <laughs> <laughs> Always a good way to start. I, I, yeah. and I'm here for the insane. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, I completely agree with everything that Francis said, and I think what she said was 100% accurate. However, and I'm choosing my wording very, very carefully because I don't want the absolutely insane group of people that are the XRP army to believe that I'm agreeing in any way, shape or form with this position around liquidity. But there is something that's missing here, and that's um, the potential liquidity improvement and efficiency gains that you can get by re reimagining the way in which liquidity works. Now, the ripple model for this is XRP. Why you would want to do that, I have no clue as to why you'd want to do that unless it was just to pump the price of XRP. However, if what you wanted to do instead was to um, get that money and create the equivalent of a data lake, but for value, so you have a value lake, then you can better control and manage your liquidity flows. So that's quite different if you're then doing that in central bank funds. So you're then improving the efficiencies of your liquidity management. You're still using real bank assets, well, central bank assets, so it's actual real money, not some made up magical internet money, and you can actually do something useful with it. So you don't have the situations that Colin's referring to. Uh, you can get some efficiency gains, nowhere near the efficiency gains that I would say are being bandied that around. brothers had. No, not, not quite those efficiency gains. <laughs> yeah. um, but you can improve the situation. You then have that better oversight. But using that with some sort of transition currency makes zero sense to me. Yeah, uh, right. I mean, to me, this is like, just like the latest iteration of the same conversation that, you know, many of these DLT-based approaches are actually not solving the problems uh, that are, uh, truly exist in cross-border payments. So the, uh, the problems usually lie within data sharing, KYC, identity, and the kind of trusts that we actually have to establish in the whole value chain of cross-border payments. And just putting a distributed database in the middle of it doesn't really solve many of those issues. Now, is it perfect system today? Absolutely not. Uh, it, it absolutely can be better, uh, but uh, I don't think the technology is the answer, uh, to be honest, in this case. You don't think XRP is the answer, is that what you're saying? Technology. I didn't say that, you did. <laughs> <laughs> what, what you heard was my jaw dropping and hitting the table there. <laughs> That's exactly the point, right? Having a new technology is fantastic. Reimagining how repo markets, if I can paraphrase Anthony a bit, is fantastic. Doing all these things is great with new technology and new tools, but just having new technologies and new tools doesn't mean, bam, everything's going to work that we hope works. There are still limits of economics, right? And that's <laughs> the really crucial point that we keep coming back to is that uh, reimagining your processes and your workflows is, is actually a valuable thing. If you go back to first principles, you start, at, so why am I actually doing this stuff? You know, to what end? Why would I want? And, and I think, frankly, that requires quite a lot of understanding of uh, how repo markets work. It requires understanding of how global payments work. And if this stuff sounds complex, it's because it is. <laughs> <laughs> But, but it doesn't have to be, and I think that it could be a lot more efficient and it could be a, a hell of a lot better. But I would argue as well that some of the ways things are built are emergent. They're not just driven by um, banks or old fuddy-duddies that had technologies. Uh, that A lot of it was, you know, this is how trade and barter works. Um, there's there's a whole bunch of things that have been figured out because there are relationships between humans and contracting parties and entities, and we figured out ways to work within that. And there may be more efficient ways that uh, some technologies can help us manage that. Um, but how do we step back to the underlying job that the, the the businesses are trying to get done and how do we focus on those end-to-end -end journeys and those workflows and that then drives out okay great so what tech do i need um it's it's a horse and cart yeah, so i think there's, there's two parts of that so one part i'll mention and then part because we're going to come onto it anyway but um i think that's kind of what shania was getting to in his piece in wired it was very much around this socio-technological um system and this this advancement this movement which basically is underpinned by you know various technological principles which aren't really new just because you slap a new label on it but there is the caveat on the other side of that and the caveats with any new technology um, if you're trying to reinvent the existing systems you have you're probably not going to create efficiency gains however there's always the outside chance that you'll be able to find something that's fundamentally different to the existing model and i guess that's why all of you people are listening to this right now and while we're all sat in the room because there's the potential maybe not yet realized but the potential for blockchain to do that can I ask one last just parting question on this? Is there $5 trillion in the Nostra Vostra system 
to be unlocked through DLT just by moving to a bridge currency? No. No. I mean, again, you know, even if that exists, uh, unlocking it doesn't really make the situation any better. That's the whole point. Unlocking it probably makes the situation worse. Correct. And that's the issue, uh, is that uh, you have to fundamentally believe that that is locked um, for a bad reason, for a reason that serves no purpose in order for this bridging currency story to, uh, to even make any sense. And then you'd have to believe that a bridging currency is the best solution to that problem if it did in fact exist, which we, I, I think, pretty thoroughly have, have talked about. Maybe it doesn't. Can I just say that Sarah seems very quiet today? Do I? Yes. Oh, uh, well, I was going to jump in, but actually I sort of agree with everything that you all have to say. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, short of uh, interrupting you all. Feel free. Oh. <laughs> oh. No, it's a good point. I mean, I, I think the reimagining the blueprint in terms of what fundamentally you can't change around banking system, and there, there are a number of those things, um, whether it's central bank money or international payments and how they actually work, but you can't just add a new thing on top of it because then, you know, the older dies, you end up with 15 standards. Ah, that old chestnut. Um, speaking of, um, there's, uh, there's a pretty interesting story over on uh, Wired.com. Story on Wired is there's no good reason to trust blockchain technology. Um, the, the article says the following. When you analyze both blockchain and trust, you quickly realize that there's much more hype than value. Blockchain solutions are often much worse than what they replace. And of course, when he says blockchains, he goes on to, the author here specifically goes on to talk about public permissionless blockchains that are backed up with a crypto asset. Um, most blockchain enthusiasts have naturally an unnaturally narrow definition of trust. Um, they're fond of catchphrases like, in code we trust, in math we trust, in crypto we trust. Um, trust this is trust verification, but verification is not the same as trust. What blockchain does is shift some of this trust in people and institutions to trust in tech. You need to trust the cryptography, the protocols, the software, the computers, and the network. And you need to trust them, absolutely, because they're single points of failure. But what they don't eliminate um, is the need to trust human institutions. Um, and, and then he goes on to say the reality of blockchain technologies, often it's quite centralized. Bitcoin might theoretically be based on distributed trust, but in practicality, that's just not true. So I, I can hear the purists screaming at this, but actually, uh, Anthony, is it worth explaining who the author is? Yeah, so when you say the author, um, it's probably worth mentioning that this is Bruce Schneier. Like, Bruce Schneier is literally the cryptographer. He wrote the book literally on cryptography. Mm -hmm. Applied cryptography is... you Great know. Book. Yeah, it's the seminal piece. I mean, my daughter's called Mallory, for Christ's sake. Um, <laughs> that's how much I love this guy. I, I, I do think he contradicts himself at one point. Bruce, if you're listening, I'm very sorry. I love you. Um, but he does contra contradict himself at one point where he says, there are no use cases, and then he lists three. Granted, those, <laughs> <laughs> granted those use cases are all based around kind of uh, criminality. But it kind of speaks to this point around censorship resistance. Um, so I think he's completely right in regards to this. Um, it doesn't get rid of the need for trust. It moves trust. However, I think if I was to criticize one thing about the article, and it pains me to do so, but if I was to criticize one thing, it's the assumption within the article is that the movement of trust isn't necessarily valuable. And I would say that it is. So one of the conversations that we've had, um, kind of various people in the room amongst ourselves, around what is blockchain really? What is it really doing? And it's helping to scale socialized trust. So if you think about it in that way, it's kind of different. So yes, you still need the trust. However, the society that you're trusting or the community that you're trusting might be slightly different to today. So when you're talking about all of these purists going, banks are evil, so we need to replace banks. What they're actually saying is, well, we don't trust banks, but we do trust this community people who also hate banks. So therefore, we'd much rather stand behind them and trust them than we would financial institutions that have been involved in things like the 2008-2009 financial crisis. Yeah, I think that's a very good <laughs> point as well, because he's, yes, there is trust in institutions, but we know that sometimes that trust is misplaced, whether through malice or through incompetence or through just sheer accidents. Um, but I think, I mean, there's, he, he obviously explains that he means public blockchains with a consensus mechanism, distributed consensus, and a native cryptocurrency. And it goes on to dismiss private blockchains, saying they're uh, entirely boring. Um, but I think, actually, if you look at a class of blockchains that do have distributed consensus, uh, but ha add a layer of permissioning on top, in other words, certain people are allowed to 
uh, or certain institutions maybe are allowed to do certain functions, functions that we know as being protected in the banking um, industry, then that gives them accountability as well. And therefore, we're looking at something like a governance, like a rule book that he mentions too. So I think there's, I of course, agree with everything Bruce Schneier says, <laughs> uh, but I, I think there's another dimension that we can open up there that isn't just the dichotomy of private blockchains are boring and, and cryptocurrencies are useless. I, I think boring is a good criticism because uh, therefore, like, yes, that you can sort of use them and they're a bit dull is like, yeah, great. You could sort of use them means they're usable. Um, and I know I'm extrapolating a little bit because that's not precisely what he said. Um, but there's also, I think, a, a broader term. I really like what um, Lee Brain, uh, your colleague, often says, which is uh, how thinking about uh, dealing with state and state uh, transition as a system rather than as something that each individual actor in the network does. That creates good design patterns. And I think the technology sort of forces you into different design patterns uh, that you wouldn't have ordinarily considered. Uh, because historically, what would we do? We'd have an API and you'd squirt some data through that API. We wouldn't share state and we wouldn't share state transitions unique, uh, kind of in, in sequence and, and, and kind of uh, in order. That, to me, is something that's really interesting and, and hasn't really been a central point for discussion. Uh, I know that's not key to this article, but I think it is key to understanding how do you get five or six banks to agree to a thing? Well, actually, if they're all sharing similar state and they're sharing state transition, that can be an interesting area to start playing. So I think, again, this comes back to socialized trust. So it's just a different society and different community. So yes, it might be six, 12, 50, 20,000 banks, but it's still a community of trusted actors where you have an expected level of minimum due diligence. So I think maybe there's a misunderstanding, dare I say it, um, from Bruce's behalf on what a private blockchain is. Um, however, I think it, it's basically depends on the scalability. So if I was to guess, I would think he's probably referring to those private blockchains, and we all know they exist, that sit with one counterparty who owns all of the control, all of the transactions, mm -hmm. um, manages everything. Are you talking about Ethereum? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, but now you say it. Um, but no, in all seriousness, I think that, um, it's, again, if you don't have a community, then it's kind of pointless. There's, there's no point, and it is boring, um, having one centralized blockchain, you might as well just have have a centralized database. For sure, and all the criticisms that he lists in the article there about it being incredibly expensive and efficient and that redundancy isn't necessarily necessary, isn't necessary, um, unnecessary words there. Uh, the redundancy <laughs> isn't necessary if you have a centralized party that you trust or at least are willing to enact with su in such a way that they have accountability and you know that you have courts of law to go through. So I think this is about, sorry, were you going to say something? Yeah, I'm just two points to add, basically, which is that, first of all, uh, as banks, I have to say boring is good. You know, like, yeah. That's, you know, if things are working, it's boring. That's fantastic. <laughs> Second, uh, in the article, rock and roll banks. Uh, in, in the article, he also goes on to explain that, you know, most of these technologies have existed for decades. Nothing has really changed. And that really just, you know, reinforces what we, at, at least in my bank, uh, see this technology doing for us. It's basically the permission to create shared infrastructure and networks. And for that, you know, you might need some form of distributed database that might or might not look like a blockchain. But, you know, this whole kind of an idea that now suddenly we have a permission to work together with the other banks to create more efficient infrastructure in uh, alone is, uh, is super uh, kind of valuable. I think that's a really interesting point, because even within one bank, you tend to find that, the, you know, they've been... They built a, a sort of a, a current account system that did IDNV, and then it does um, customer records management, and then behind that there's a ledger, and out of the back there's payments. And then there's a loan system that does IDNV, and it has customer records management, and in the middle there's a ledger, and out of the back there's payments. And then there's a mortgage system that has IDNV, that has customer records management, a ledger, and does payments out of the back. And then they acquire another bank that had all of those systems. Um, do they get rid of all of their systems and rationalize them down to one horizontal super system? No, they no. do not. Because so what they do is they stick a layer over the top, and what you end up with is this sedimentary rock approach, where you end up with pro progressive CIOs with different bits of technology lining over the top, and you see infinite more complexity as you go further up towards corporate banking and investment banking, but a similar pattern. And so the the opportunity here to say, well, actually, not only is what banks do internally similar. But behind the scenes, a lot of those processes are remarkable. Like, banks all think it's really, really different. But as somebody who's now seen inside lots of different 
banks. There's a lot of there are some things that are unique IP without question, and, and and banks do it differently. But there are some things that are very very sort of table stakes. But they all implement it differently, even in, internally. So if you can start to share that cost and share that infrastructure, especially where it's compliant, especially where you have to share data with the regulator, that just makes sense. I think it makes sense to start thinking about. How do I get away from the silo approach and have horizontal infrastructure with shared services? And really, to me, you see this more commonly outside of blockchain in the move towards um, microservices like Kubernetes and, uh, and and generally having a shared messaging platform like Kubernetes, which again is, is an immutable log, um, which could be quite helpful for an organization to think about how it le- leaps forward. So... Uh- I think it was actually you that said this a few years ago. We were having this conversation. Um, it was something along the lines of blockchain is physically distributed but conceptually centralized. Yeah. Um, and that, for me, is a little bit of an issue from a security standpoint. So there there are many, many issues with having redundant systems or system redundancy where you have multiple iterations of the same thing. However, it also makes the systems massively resilient because if anyone goes down, it doesn't impact the others. Now, I know that the blockchain massive out there will be arguing with me immediately and saying, well, blockchains are highly resilient because one node goes down doesn't mean the whole system goes down. Although this may be true, if there's a bug within the blockchain infrastructure itself, and that's deployed to all of the people that are then validating that infrastructure across the nodes, that becomes a systemic issue for the entire network. That's not something that you get these days. So I get the rationalization of costs, and I think it's actually one of the promises of blockchain that if you can rationalize business logic on top of a shared data state, that's fantastically useful, very, very economical, very, very cost efficient. However, at the same time, you're moving your risk. So you're reducing your overall cost, but you're moving your risk then to what's effectively a centralized shared software. Indeed, although... Uh, I, yeah, we, we've sort of seen that with FMIs and CSDs and, and other bits of market structure. So that's a pattern we understand, right? We, we, we're used to shifting um, kind of counterparty risk into systemic risk, and that's something that uh, has happened consistently. But this is arguably a new class of counterparty risk, a technical counterparty risk, where yeah. all the money could be in the right place, oh, but for whatever reason, the money's just <laughs> disappeared. All right. Uh, well, I think that's important to think about. For sure, uh, the new kind of technical counterparty risk. I like that terminology for sure, definitely. Um, but I think that is the case if you have one implementation of this that goes globally across every different workflow that you need. One blockchain you, to roll them all. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I think you know that that was a question a while ago, and and the answer is probably that's not going to be the case. There's going to be multiple different types of blockchain that have different use cases based on the actual properties that they have, um, whether they're security property properties or topology ones. Whatever, but we need to now that we're thinking about this kind of technological counterparty risk, we need to make sure that we build something that doesn't have that potential. Well, I'm going to so show you multiple implementations of the same blockchain. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> oh, how about that? Of the um, same so I think there's two parts of a three part puzzle that we've covered. We've covered the, the cost takeout, and we've covered risk moving. Um, and I think that's an interesting point because it does, and there are ways, ways around that, um, and technology risk. Uh, but I think the one we haven't talked about, Colin, is liquidity, which is which is the game. Um, and there's a number of use cases where um, the change in the amount of counterparties in a transaction, or uh, where my risk is with those given counterparties, you know, collateral at multiple venues, the removal of uh, gl- local custodians when I've already got a global custodian. Those sorts of conversations really are, are what get the attention of decision makers to me more mm-hmm. than the cost conversation. Well, I mean, if you look at a capital markets context, and obviously very different from the payments context that we discussed earlier, um, you have lots of securities that are tied up that just can't move out into the market, or it takes them a while to move out in the market. And yeah, somebody's probably benefiting from that, but it's not necessarily the the person that's paying that service, uh, and they'd probably rather get the benefit in their own pocket or to their end pension holders or whoever happens to own this this fund. Um, and some of it is reimagining things like repo. Some of it's reimagining things like uh, local and global custodianship. Some of it's uh, taking uh, clearing houses and netting them off against each other in multiple different jurisdictions, which is groundbreaking law changes and and things that are very boring, like how do we change accounting and uh, default rules in, inside of uh, you know the, the the German state of Hess versus the UK. Probably not very blockchainy, but you know if you could start to to have those discussions and start to change laws, it, it might open up new things. But you need new technology to access it. So uh, we, we've mentioned it a few times um, implicitly, and I'd just like to pull it out. I, I think for me, the reason why blockchain 
was interesting in the first place and continues to be interesting is because it challenges some of the social norms um, that exist today in regards to our concepts around things. So Bitcoin challenged our concept around what money and what value actually is. And whether or not Bitcoin will survive or not is largely irrelevant. We're actually talking about, well, what is value? What, what does it actually do? Um, I think that when we start to look at the broader applications of blockchain, we're starting to talk about what society is and what trust is and how that actually works together. So when we talk about the reason why companies exist and the, the reason why people put their trust in companies, it's the brand of the company. And that's why companies spend so much money on brand. It's the human psychology. It, absolutely. Uh, it, it is. So a human recognizes a brand logo in the same way a human recognizes a face. The, uh, the same bits of the brain light up. And and, it, and and that's why, to me, um, how you communicate and so much of what you do as a, as a financial services brand is so powerful because you're exactly the same as, as a person in that instance. Um, and your ability to be transparent, your ability to be clear, your, all of those sorts of virtues of a, of a modern brand are absolutely critical. I mean, if you look at everything from the vegan sausage roll from Greg's to uh, Nike and Colin Kaepernick, like what you're seeing is brands standing for something and mean and, and having you know, belief in something 20 years ago it was we're big don't worry um now it's i think it's moved on a little bit we're on your side we got you that sort of stuff um and, and i think that conversation will, will change about trust and we're increasingly moving into a world in which we trust data less and less you know the rise of fake news um the reliance on social media we're we're struggling for that societally it's not a surprise that um a16z sees a future software primitive of trust where you can come to consensus about stuff across actors. To me, there is something interesting in how do you enforce design patterns with uh, shared state and state transition. And again, for those of you who aren't technical backgrounds, like state machines are worth sticking into Wikipedia and looking at what they do. They're a concept in maths, and it, it, it is really, really powerful once once you kind of get your head around that. And we should probably do a, a nerd episode at some point that gets into all of that stuff. Here, here. Bring it back to the article. And I think because it's one of the things that I think is going to be overlooked, there's a lot of content, there's a lot of detail. Anyone who's ever read any of Bruce's stuff, I mean, it's long. It's not the kind of stuff you just pick up and have a casual read of. So I imagine that the article itself was edited back quite a bit. But there's a bit where he talks about socio-technical. And I think that's really what we're talking about here. It's not just the technical side, it's that cultural side. And Bruce recognised the fact that unless you have the societal side of those changes, you're never going to get anything through. It's not going to work because you need that same trust of people en masse in something that's effectively a technological brand. Yeah, How about for that? Sure. You still need front ends why... and you still need branding. And that's why Bitcoin isn't going away. Bitcoin has a logo, yes, but actually it was about incentivizing people to propagate the network honestly. And that, it, yes, it, it involved a lot of questions about what is value, what is money, what does it actually mean? It's a shared disillusion, whatever you want to call it. But, but people believe it and people trust it. And the technology incentivized them to do it properly. And I think for me, that is the crux of why Bitcoin actually became a thing that stuck in people's hearts and minds. For good Interesting or for bad. stuff incentivize them until they're not incentivized to. The problem with any game well, theory, any, any yeah. economic incentive is as soon as the economic incentive swings, uh, swings the other way, as we saw with ETC, everything... Well, all, all that's cards slightly different. I mean, the, the lack of trust he talks about in the article is about um, the centralized mining being in China, for example, Absolutely. and that being a, an attack vector on Bitcoin. Um, so so uh, the point where the incentive stops being let's mine Bitcoin in the proper way and instead becomes let's mine it in a not proper way, then the network's broken. Indeed. There are many, I, I many, know, many, many, many risks and issues with this sort of stuff. <laughs> I'm sure we could rumble on for this one forever, but what I found super powerful about this conversation is uh, blockchain seems to be a bit of a lightning rod. Uh, people either love it or hate it. It's definitely Marmite. Um, and the, the, the people uh, that I listen to and respect on this subject tend not to tell you it's a panacea uh, that's going to solve all of the world's ills. Um, it's it's something that can work in some contexts and actually you still need to think about things like, God forbid, customers, brand, transparency. Um, you still need to think about business models. You still need to think about what job is a customer trying to get done and you still need to think about those end-to-end -end journeys. Um, speaking of end-to-end -end journeys, the journey that we have next is the ad read. Uh, so Colin... <laughs> uh, oh God, it says Simon on it. <laughs> uh, uh, Colin, this episode is brought to you by who? By R3. Um, blockchain, it's not just for what? FinServe. Tons of industries can reap major benefits. For example, insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, and you name it. <laughs> <laughs> Discover the potential of blockchain for your business with R3's quarter platform. R3's quarter platform offers 
privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus. Plus, it includes the mission-critical features that every complex business needs, including... The world's only blockchain application firewall. <laughs> um, the Coda platform, blockchain for every business in every industry. Head to... Uh, R3.com <laughs> to find out. Um, and this is the uh, now obligatory Todd McDonald shout-out. Friend of the show, Todd McDonald. Well, that was the ad read, and that was insightful. Thanks for that, Colin G. Flat. Thank you. It was a good time. <laughs> uh, it's, it is interesting how uh, these platforms are slowly being used more and more every day, um, but changing gears a little bit. Um, Coindesk.com, the SEC commissioner, says an ETF will be, a Bitcoin ETF will be approved eventually. Robert J. Jackson Jr., uh, who's got a lot of J's, um, in an interview said, eventually I do think somebody will satisfy the standards that we've laid out. Yeah, I hope so. Yes, and I think so. Um, discussing the Winklevoss proposal with Roll Call, okay, uh, Jackson said it was not a difficult case, uh, but the risk of manipulation to harm investors was enormous. Well, the market was very, has a very serious liquidity problem. Let's take those two parts well, in fact, let's step can right I, back. Can I just stop here? Doesn't it sound like this guy from just reading what you said was like nominated by Donald Trump or something? Yeah, a little bit. Eventually, I do think somebody <laughs> will satisfy the standards that have laid here. Yeah, I hope so. Yes, and I think so. Best uh, standards. Who's got the best uh, Bitcoin ETF? Everyone agrees that it's the best. It's tremendous. <laughs> Anyone tremendous. know who's the most tremendous Bitcoin ETF? The bigliest. <laughs> <laughs> What's an ETF? <laughs> Uh, an ETF is an exchange-traded fund. What that means is essentially it's like any other investment fund, only it happens to trade on an exchange, which means you have, instead of just once a day or every week, um, a price, you have prices continuously during the trading day. Interesting. And you... <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. That, that basically sounded like, I have no clue what you just said. <laughs> it, was a, it was a filler word to get me to my next point. Keep all that in. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> so the the ETF piece, uh, I guess you would see that in your Fidelity account, your Vanguard account. You would see that in your Hargreaves Lansdowne. You might. Uh, this is the sort of thing that consumers are buying inside of Robinhood. They can buy these things as well as buying a traditional stocks and shares. You might buy something like um, an index of all of the things happening across the S and P five hundred or the FTSE one hundred, and that allows you to buy access to a market without buying the, each of the individual stocks themselves. Yeah. And so, so this, in, in essence, and similar to gold, I can buy a gold ETF without having to buy bars of gold. Um, and, and there are other ways to achieve that, but it's probably an ETF is one of the more common ways to achieve that. So this gets me you know, in legal sort of ownership of something like the asset. Um, and then uh, I, I you know, kind of would benefit from price increases and lose if the price goes down. So having one of these for Bitcoin would potentially make it available on a whole bunch of platforms and therefore it would be a mainstream moment. Have we confirmed that if one of these gets approved that the first one, like the ticker symbol, will be R-E-K-T? <laughs> <laughs> we need to get that approved. We need that to happen. <laughs> that, that, I mean, uh, if you're listening, Robert J. Jackson Jr., um, then that, that's that's what we need to do. That that's one of the requirements. Um, eventually, do I think somebody will satisfy the standards that we've laid out here? I hope so. Yes, and I think so. Uh, so on that point, actually, I, when I read this article, I didn't get the takeaway that a Bitcoin ETF will be approved eventually. I wonder whether it's maybe slightly clickbaity headline. Yeah, asked a question and answers it, and then you know adds in lots of. Are you questioning Different. the unbiasedness of a of a <laughs> article written by a company called CoinDesk about Bitcoin and whether it eventually will get a lot more money I'm, put I've into it? I never said I was questioning their bias. I okay. was saying that potentially, you know, like most publications, they like readers. But I mean, there's lots of lots of information in there as well, and there's lots of times when ETFs have been requested for approval and they've been rejected. I think that's an um, important historic point, isn't it? They, they've been up before; they've been rejected a whole bunch of times. And there's two main points that are called out here: um, the risk of manipulation and harm to investors. So, market manipulation. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it, and and I guess one of the things is even companies like Gemini, Coinbase, who you know, collaborate with the regulators and are known to do so can't reduce the risk of market manipulation by themselves. They can simply say, well, here's us seeing it and reporting it. But a lot of the exchanges that exist outside of the purview of the SEC. Uh, so it, it's, you know, the, there is risk there. Uh, and I guess nobody's solved that. And I so Gemini have, have been no doing adverts. Wash trading ever. What's that? I, for one, have seen no evidence of wash trading ever. You haven't read my PTK piece. 
PTK, what's that? Would you like to tell us about PTK? I hear it's the standard. Thanks for the show. But so you effectively proved that uh, with you, with a blog post that you did that uh, you that can I became move, a quadrillionaire. That you can move the price of an asset uh, <laughs> to zero overnight. Well done, Colin. <laughs> uh, but, but up to you know several quadrillion in dollars and right back down again. Um, so it's, it's still up there. It's still up there. Uh, it only has. We deleted the function for the price goes down. It only goes up. <laughs> but isn't this the issue with I think people in general so people as an individual are quite smart and they're very aware however I think we struggle with large numbers and financial systems have a lot of really really large numbers so people look at Bitcoin and go wow look at Bitcoin it's all this money and then people in finances look at it and go not so much like that's a really really tiny market so people massively underestimate the ability to manipulate what's actually a really tiny market when compared to larger markets well this is the second point right so robert j jackson jr uh, also says the market has a very serious liquidity problem uh, and, and i think that's probably fair comment i mean maybe ripple can solve it but this is it when it's a thinly traded market uh, you could manipulate this market quite easily. It also suggests that the surveillance is limited and therefore that how do you approve an ETF where mainstream investors could get access to an asset that has a serious risk of, of being manipulated just because A, the liquidity is limited and B, the uh, the surveillance is not sufficient. I think that's a fair question. I don't believe that putting adverts on the subway and in the New York Times saying you know crypto need rules is, is the answer. I know Gemini did that. And I know they do a lot of good work. That's not that's not intended as a pot shot. Uh, but I think it's there's got to be more that you can do than simply doing that. Because otherwise, um, you can see the tough position the regulators are in. But can we can we take a step back on this? Like ETFs are great for things like the S and P five hundred because as a as an individual, if I want to put a thousand dollars into an investment, it would be a pain in the ass. Actually, impossible to go out and buy five hundred different stocks in a proportion to replicate that. It's easy just to like go give that to people and buy it and trade it during the same day. Bitcoin was literally created to be the easiest thing for an individual to hold. And you can hold a fraction of it, meaning if I want to put in $5, I can. Most people don't know that, though. That's pretty I know, I know. But we're trying to recreate a system and push something down this road to say, let's put it into this old school format that's going to take fees on something that doesn't bear any interest payments or, or dividends or coupons or anything like that, that eventually will just get leveraged down to zero because you have to pay all these investment fees of custody in this thing when you could be like, well, I'm just going to go buy this thing for one-off payment and then remember some numbers. So is it like putting a saddle on a car? A little bit. Yeah. Is it like buying a block of gold? Uh, probably worse. <laughs> Philip, last time you were on the show, you said um, you really questioned the need for an ETF. Uh, what's your perspective on it now? Yeah, I mean, still the same, basically. I mean, the only reason what you, what you the only reason why you want to put an ETF on a Bitcoin is basically selling this to investors that don't know what Bitcoin is or how it works or how it should work and what what is it. The only the only reason you do an ETF uh, is that you want to package this hyped thing that uh, rarely people understand uh, and bring that money into the market. And to me, it's just wrong i mean if, if you know what bitcoin is you know how to get it that's fine uh but you don't need uh, this kind of etf instrument uh, to kind of drive in uh, uh liquidity that's not uh, earned in my opinion you know what i think we should do instead of an etf what we should do is go to every casino in las vegas and wherever else in europe put up like the bitcoin price and just bet on it <laughs> is las vegas in europe and every other casino, whatever. Well, it might be. I don't know. I haven't been there in a while. Speaking of nothing to do with casinos, let's go to the next story. <laughs> <laughs> Seamless. Yeah, that, that's how you do a segue, people. Um, the story comes from the block crypto. Um, and sounds, this is, the headline here is Hester Pierce. Tokens sold for use in a functioning network are not securities. Pierce reiterated that the SEC applies existing securities laws to any token sales or ICOs, which means they must be conducted in accordance with securities laws uh, or under an exemption. Uh, she said that uh, many of these projects begin in a centralized manner that looks about the same as any other startup. However, that when the tokens are not being sold as investment contracts, they are not securities at all. She added that tokens that are sold for use in a functioning network rather than as investment contracts fall outside the definition of securities. Interesting. I think worth taking a step back here. This relates to everything that happened around ICOs. Um, uh, in the last year, we saw the ICO bubble. We saw the market go up. We saw the market come crashing back down. 
We saw, I think, the SEC come out and say things like um, the, the they haven't seen an ICO that doesn't look like a securities issuance. We've actually seen uh, action against some ICO issuers for breaking securities laws and for failing the Howey test. Good. The, the, this to me feels like a, um, a this kind of conversation around sufficiently decentralized that uh, Coin Center have been talking about for some time. Um, and of course, this comes uh, probably the classic example here is Ethereum. So Ethereum uh, issues their token in sort of, what was it, 2015. Um, they reach a point at which now this is a functioning network that is global and there are many people that can buy and sell ETH, but they don't believe they're buying and selling securities at this point. Now the network is sufficiently decentralized. So it looks as if this sufficiently decentralized argument may have won the day. So, yeah, maybe. I'm not convinced. And the reason I'm not convinced is because it's too wishy-washy. Like, how is something sufficiently decentralized? What, what are your caveats? What are your credentials for that? Why is Ethereum sufficiently decentralized and XYZ ICO shill isn't? I mean, you, you need to understand what the, the borders are and how you actually get there. The other thing around the issuance of utility tokens, and I don't necessarily disagree. I, I genuinely believe that there are at least maybe three ICOs out there that probably had good intentions and genuinely did want to do utility tokens, not that one. Um, so they actually wanted to provide a network of utility. However... Dogecoin. Dogecoin, good one. <laughs> um, the issue is that intention doesn't necessarily make it any less... I want to say less bad, but that's probably not great English. Yeah, no, subjective intent, right? Like, yeah. if my subjective intent is to do, to save the world, um, and I do so by shooting dogs, like, I could have intended to save the world, but really what I'm doing is I'm killing dogs. I could support that. If my subjective intent is... Do an ICO is, instead. Yeah, like, if my subjective intent is to uh, issue an ICO that makes payments better for the world, but what I really do is issue something that uh, is abused by criminals, it doesn't matter what my intent was. What I've done is I've committed a crime. Absolutely. And, and I think that's an important point. Like, I don't win a prize for uh, not intending to break the law. I win a prize for not breaking the law. There's, there's a difference. But the other problem with this ambiguity is that if you've got this idea that um, if you're going to be issuing tokens into a utility network for utility purpose, therefore it's not security. If you're selling those tokens prior to their existence and you never actually create those tokens because you're always developing the network, I did that little air quotes thing, really annoying, but um, you're just developing the network. At what point do the SEC say, well, you know what, enough's enough. You've got a lot of money out of retail investors. You're not actually developing anything. Or do you just go, well, they're going to be developing a utility network, therefore not a security, therefore not a domain. But isn't this simple, though? I mean, what are you doing? What is, what is the actual purpose of you doing this token? And then what is the token being used for? So the example I usually bring up in these conversations is uh, mobile operator airplane, which is a fantastic example of actually having something uh, nominated in, in a currency, but you cannot just walk to an ATM and you know, convert that to cash. And there's a reason for that. The, uh, the, uh, the regular has put really kind of strict limits on, uh, that, on what you can actually do with mobile operator airtime, you know, even though it might look, look like euros in your, in your balance uh, at any given time. And the reason then why you, why you move away from that is that you want to do something else. So in case of mobile operators in, in Africa, for example, what they wanted to do is to provide money services, e-money services effectively uh, to their customers. And therefore, they went in and got a properly regulated uh, system to achieve exactly that. So I don't see any difference in this blockchain uh, utility kind of token discussion. I mean, if you actually have a token that you use for doing something, then you don't actually need a secondary so market for Pat it. Pat Baraducci of um, Consensus and the Brooklyn Project did a tweet storm that I, I recommend checking out. Uh, uh, Google Pat Baraducci and Twitter and Consensus and you'll find this tweet storm. Um, so he, he says that um, the, the most challenging thing to him in this, and obviously he comes at it from, from the other side of the, the, the table, is that you know, his perspective is very much that you could at some point in the future and or you, you may now see um, networks that uh, where people are you, procuring a product and service. They may be very small. They may not be scalable. The technology may be earlier. But as a thought experiment, if you imagine that, the, that you have these tokens that are not being used, the activity, the person, you know, so I am using this to use, the, I am burning or spending this ETH in order to put a peep out onto Peepeth, you know, like to, to actually use the service. 
that may be fine. And it's and he welcomed the fact that the SEC have now said that that activity can indeed exist, which actually aligns with uh, recent FCA guidance as well, which aligns with a guidance from the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Uh, then we recognize that those scenarios do exist. But he says the problem is that the SEC are defining tokens themselves as securities. The interesting thing about a token is much like a postage stamp, it can it can shapeshift. So I can have a postage stamp that uh, I use to send a letter. I can have a postage stamp that has value uh, because uh, there's a collector. Um, the face value of that postage stamp and the resale value of that classical postage stamp are two completely different things. Same with these tokens. The underlying thing itself can be used in different ways. Therefore, we need to focus on the activity, not the thing itself. And I think that's an important point. Can I just hit on that point? And one thing that, that really worries me, and, and Dr. Andrew Welsh put out a really interesting piece about you know what is decentralization that hits on this point, is by going this route, we are regulating technology. Let's just be really clear on that. These types of remarks, talking about functioning, non-functioning networks, are regulating technology, not the activity, the technology. And I think that's very dangerous, especially when you get in to the globalized nature of these things and start saying, well, in the US, because of this, it's that, and because of this and that, because it's technology. In Europe, that's not going to fly. I, I would put it to you that it was the introduction of sufficiently decentralized that's caused that issue. But it's bullshit. Yeah, and you, and you don't see that issue in uh, you don't see that issue in Europe, you don't see that issue in Asia. What you see is uh, regulators quietly calmly getting to use cases where an activity is not uh, something that is they're not focusing on how decentralized the thing is, they're focusing on the activity. And to me that's probably the, the right focus. Um listen we could go on this one forever. Uh, we're up against it on time. I'm going to do stories we didn't have time to cover, and then we'll get it to Tweet of the Week. So stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Uh, New York Stock Exchange parent ICE anticipates a $20 million spend on Backed this year. Um, Coindesk.com, a high school team places third in a blockchain challenge event. I Yay. wonder what blockchain challenge event that was, Sarah. I don't know. Let's uh, predict the future. Uh, that was the uh, hack ion we did last week. Uh, yeah. and uh, <laughs> You're getting a lot of shills today. <laughs> we did a bonus episode speaking to that high school team. So if you want to know more, check out the bonus episode. Hope you got the consent forms. Yes, we did. We did. There, was, there was also some grown-up <laughs> teams as well. <laughs> Uh, producer Petra is being trolled by Anthony Macy from Barclays Limited. <laughs> and, and, he owes me, and he owes me 10 million euros as well because he didn't get a form from me. 20 million. breach. story we didn't have time to cover is uh, from the block crypto.com. Canadian securities regulators are looking into Quadringa CX because Canada. Um, <laughs> this time it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the week comes from the one and only Jack Dorsey. Colin, this is all new. What's let, going on? Let here? me just go ahead and read the tweet here. LNBC. No, I'm not actually no, going to read, read the tweet. That'd be amazing. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. So uh, basically, there's context for this tweet. Yeah, why don't you um, start with Matt Adele's tweet? We're going to start with Matt Adele's, but we'll start even further back. So in Bitcoin, there's this thing we've talked about called Lightning. The idea is you can send peer-to-peer. -peer. Yes, excellent. So the idea is in your Twitter profile, you add a little Lightning bolt. End of story. Actually, it's slightly more sophisticated. There's a technology... Yeah, they reinvented netting. They reinvented netting on top of Bitcoin. Basically, we can send Bitcoin transactions around much quicker without actually putting them through the blockchain until we eventually settle them out through a netting process. Um, basically, there was this thing that kind of became a viral thing where people were passing around money and saying, right, I'm going to send Anthony a thousand Satoshis, which is the, the smallest uh, unit of Bitcoin. He's going to then send around um, a something to Sarah saying, I want 1,100. It's all about making money, right? Um, Satoshis, all done through the Lightning Network. It was passing through Twitter. Eventually, we got Jack Dorsey, um, of the CEO of Twitter, to do something and actually go through and pass the money. It's pretty cool, actually, that you can send the payment through Twitter. He's not blockchain guy, is he? Sorry, Twitter. Who? Oh, what's that? Square. Never heard of it. 
square. Cash up. Jack Dorsey has been bullish on Bitcoin and blockchain for quite some time. Uh, Square, of course, famously supports it. Square is arguably uh, one of the more sustainable fintechs. You know, when they initially IPO'd, their value halved. They've now reached a point where their share price is uh, more than it was when they IPO'd. Do you own Uh, shares by any chance? Just asking. I do not own any shares (laughs) in uh, in nearly any legacy fintech shill. In in, in any fintech, I'm I'm just a genuine. He also invested in Lightning Labs. Which developed this. Did, yes, so what's interesting true. to me about Jack stock. Dorsey is his consistent business and product builder. And whether you whether these uh, businesses have set the world on fire or not, there's you know, one of them's an eight billion dollar business. Um, one of them's a, a thirty billion dollar business. They're not small. And this is somebody uh, quite famous participating in some weird little experiment, which I find kind of fun. Uh, speaking of weird little experiments, let's bring this episode to an end. Oh wait, 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 wait. <laughs> there, there was a point that wasn't raised in the tweet. I don't think um, in. Certainly, the bit. Well, you want to read more tweet. numbers out of this tweet? <laughs> no, no, no. So, um, <laughs> yeah, someone someone raised the comment that um, is this the reason why Twitter increased its character size from one twenty to two forty in order to be able to enable Lightning addresses? Absolutely, and, yes. And I think after this, this is like, well, yeah, that's probably quite an astute observation. Uh, well, interesting stuff. Alrighty. Um, oh, thanks for that, Colin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, uh, thanks to our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about uh, Nordea and yourself, Ville? You can have you can have a look at insights.nordea.com to have uh, fun st- read fun stories about how our customers are using WeTrade, for example, uh, the blockchain network that we launched last summer. Uh, and you can read about me at uh, on Twitter at uh, Ville underscore S. Brilliant, uh, Mr. Macy. There's nothing interesting about me, but there's lots of interesting stuff about my company, Barclays. So just Google it. We're quite big. You'll find us. <laughs> I have many leather-bound books and a big blue eagle. Um, <laughs> what about uh, the one and only Seraphine? Uh, you can tweet me at Seronimo or you can tweet us at Climatics because it comes into our Slack channel. I'll see you the one. Uh, or you can go to climatics.com or github.com forward slash climatics. Get repos for the win. Uh, CGP? You can find me at Anthony Macy Leaks. <laughs> also at Collegy Blatt. As a reminder, listeners, this podcast is made by 11FS, and we're a challenger consultancy uh, working to shape the next generation of financial services. Uh, we build products and services for companies big and small, uh, and we take a startup approach to building those products and services. We talk to customers, we listen to them, and then we build the tech that we know that they are going to use and enjoy. What a crazy idea and notion. Um, if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, the subscribe button's right there. Um, and of course, do keep listening. Uh, Thank you very much and goodbye for now.